Welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this is a weekly show that explores the intersection of security, technology, and humans. I spend 5 to 20 hours a week consuming books, articles, and podcasts, which I then turn into a concise 15 to 30-minute summary and analysis. There's a summary episode every week, as well as periodic standalone episodes that are either me sharing an idea on a topic or discussing one with a guest. The goal is twofold, to keep you up to date on the absolute latest in security and technology, and to explore ideas that hopefully give you something to think about. So today I'm talking to Leif Dreisler. Leif is a buddy of mine who also works in San Francisco. He's a developer at a company called Segment. And over the last year or so, he's been telling me about all kinds of cool stuff he's been working on, how his team is set up, how they see security teams being built in the future. So we're going to cover these topics and more in a conversation that ranges from security engineering strategy to solving specific problems through custom tooling. And with that, here's Leaf. All right, Leaf, thanks for coming on Unsupervised Learning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we both work here in San Francisco, and every time we get together, you always have interesting things to say about your work, whether it's the philosophy of the security team or challenges you're facing or tools that you've helped build. And we've been talking for a while now about having you on to talk about some of it. So I guess, could you just start with your origin story, how you got interested in tech, your background, et cetera? Sure. So um, there's a couple things that I think of uh, early on in um, kind of my my personal life that uh, got me interested in security. Um, one of them was in high school. I was really into Razer cell phones. I don't know if you remember the Motorola Razer, but mm. um, Verizon at the time had this thing where they wanted all of the interfaces to look the same on their phones regardless of whether it was like an LG or a Motorola or, you know, whatever. And this was before, like, everybody either had an iPhone or an Android. Um, but that Motorola firmware was much better than whatever Verizon was putting on the phones. And so I got into this forum about how you could flash the firmware um, on the phone back to, like, the stock Motorola interface. And through this process, like, you could... Uh, install games, you could get access to free internet on your phone, which, you know, at the time was kind of laughable because like none of the websites supported very good mobile browsing, yeah. uh, especially for something that didn't have a touch screen. Um, but I learned a lot about like how all this stuff worked. Um, and it, you know, it was kind of hacking because you were like bypassing like whatever uh, box Verizon absolutely was it's hacking. Put, yeah, absolutely. put you into and, you know, you had to change all these configuration files and like you're getting uh, firmware from other telephone providers that, you know, didn't have the same desires as Verizon and had like the relatively un, uh, unmodified firmware. Um, so that's one thing I think about. And then the other thing I think about is um, growing up, we couldn't use the internet until uh, we were done with our homework, which, you know, pretty fair, like do your homework and then you can, uh, go play Counter-Strike or whatever with your friends. Um, but a lot of times my dad wouldn't get uh, home to like unlock the office that had the, uh, the computer in it. And so I'd call him and I'd say, you know, hey, I finished the homework, like, where's the key? 
and he, you know, he would trust me. He would tell me where the key is. Um, and, uh, you know, then I could go use the internet. Sometimes, you know, he's busy, he's at work, uh, he's in meetings and whatnot. Like he wouldn't pick up the phone or text me back or whatever. And, uh, I wanted to use the computer cause I had held up my end of the bargain and, uh, he hadn't yet, not that it was his fault, but, um, and so one of the days I just made a copy of the key <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I, I still followed the rules. Like I would make sure my homework was done. Uh, and then I would go do whatever I wanted. Um, but, uh, then he found out that I had a key and so he would, you know, he like took the key away or whatever. And so then so, I needed, so was he uh, like a combination, like proud and upset and like unsure of which one to be? Uh, I don't think he really cared. I think he probably thought it was funny, honestly. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, kind of the next, the next iteration was, um, you know, I got a, a laptop from one of my friends. It was like an older laptop that, that they weren't using anymore. And then, uh, you know, the, the key didn't matter. So, uh, cause like we had, had Wi-Fi, And so then he would start hiding, um, the router. And then he would tell me like where the router was hidden and then the office was unlocked, but like the router was somewhere else. Um, and then one of the days I was like, all right, well, you know, there's gotta be a way to get on somebody else's internet. Like, why do I have to use my own internet? Um, and so I did what any like 15 year old kid would do and just like went onto YouTube <laughs> and looked up like how to hack Wi-Fi. Yep. And, um, this was the days of backtrack, um, you know, before Kali was Kali and, and of course there was, yep. And web exactly. And so, um, of course, there was some tutorial of somebody going through how to use Aircrack and you know how to crack the passwords from somebody else's network. Um, and so at that point, it was you know smooth sailing. Like I wrote down all the instructions. Uh, you know, had the like wireless antenna thing um, that you could put into promiscuous mode and uh, you know scan whatever was within range. And um, then I would just piggyback on somebody else's network connection. Uh, and, you know, at that point I could kind of do whatever I want, even though it was, it was slow, but uh, yeah. it still worked. So those are like a couple of the things that I think of that kind of got me interested into um, like computers beyond just like playing video games as a kid and, uh, you know, goofing around on the internet and stuff. So, and then, yeah. Did was, you study it in school as well? So I actually uh, initially joined uh, UCSB in Santa Barbara um, without a major. Um, I knew I wanted to do something science related. And so uh, my second quarter there, I took um, some math, some physics, some chemistry, and computer science. And I actually didn't even know what computer science was when I signed up for it. It was kind of just like, oh, I like computers and <laughs> there's science in this. So maybe I'll give this a shot. And, uh, ultimately it worked out really well because it was the only class I liked doing the homework for. So, uh, I figured that's probably a good thing to major in, um, compared to the other stuff where I was kind of lukewarm on it. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I ended up getting computer science degree while I was in school. Um, I got introduced to my first job at Redspin, uh, which is a security consulting company, um, based in the Santa Barbara area. And I started doing social engineering and external network assessments while I was still in school, um, then moved on to application security assessments and 
after I graduated, they gave me a full-time job and I uh, focused mostly on AppSec, but did a little bit of everything. Sometimes it was, you know, going to a bank or a casino or healthcare organization um, to do stuff on site. But yeah, for the most part, it was AppSec, which I liked the most um, because you were getting to play around with something that like that company had built themselves. Whereas a lot of the network stuff, like even though it was interesting um, and there was interesting like challenges and problems to solve there too, like it was all, you know, usually like this thing's like misconfigured or there's a yeah. known vulnerability or something like that. Cause like I wasn't good enough to like develop ODA or anything. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> I liked that, uh, you know, when I found security issues in, AppSec, it was always in something that was like novel to that organization. And like, maybe you'd have a call with the person that um, like helped work, work on whatever that thing was. And you could explain to them like why this was uh, an issue and like what, what were some steps to actually like remediate this thing. Yeah. And that's interesting. You started at Redspin. We've got some mutual friends there, uh, Jason and uh, Joel Parrish. Yeah. Jason Haddock's. Um, Seems like a pretty good hacker crew came out of Santa Barbara. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but um, I, I actually never worked with either of them. I was a little bit after their time, but there's been some really talented people um, that have come out of Redspin. And I've actually met some people randomly just at security events and stuff that like I didn't even you know know who they were. You know, maybe they worked there like three or four years before me. So um, it it definitely hit above its weight, um, at least for some period of time. Um, but yeah, after Redspin, um, I j actually joined Bug Crowd um, and worked pretty closely with Jason Haddix there um, for a while uh, on the sales engineering team. So that was fun. It was completely different than what I was doing at Redspin. It was helping hundreds of companies uh, get started and uh, kind of manage the long-term success of their bug bounty programs, which at the time was really interesting to me because, uh, you know, I was doing pen testing. I heard about bug bounties. I was like, this kind of seems like could be the future of what I'm doing currently. I want to be a part of that. Um, and then after, again, a, about two and a half years, uh, I left to join Segment as one of the early members of their security engineering team. So uh, once again, pretty different from what I had done before because now I'm just uh, like on a blue team, um, not on the sales side, not on the like red teaming side, uh, mostly on the like software engineering and like partnering with developers side of security, which uh, I've definitely liked the most. Um, personally, I like the fact that you're working with the same people like month after month and you actually get to see improvements yeah. over the long term whereas a lot of times in consulting it was like you'd come back you'd do the same engagement the last year and the first thing you do is go over your old report and just like write write up at least half the stuff yeah uh that you, that you found last change year. the date yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh it's really interesting arc though because a lot of people a lot of people in security they they just sort of stumble into it or they um they come from a netsec background or a sysadmin um, I think a lot of the best actually come from a dev background, but so you came from dev background, studying in school, went right into pen testing, which is like a super dream. Then you went <laughs> into bounty, which like you said, it was basically you saw it as an iteration 
possibly on, on pen testing or, or the future of pen testing. And then back to dev and uh, blue team. It's a really cool arc. Yeah, I mean, honestly, getting into security was kind of luck because I just knew somebody at UCSB that was working at Redspin at the time. And, um, you know, I was looking for another part-time job while I was in school. Um, I'd worked a few other, uh, like, non-security places. But, um, yeah, he introduced me to the director of engineering at the time, David Shaw, who I'm still uh, really good friends with. We send each other memes all the time. We, we chat on the phone and stuff. So definitely a really influential person in my security career and mm-hmm. just, I guess, life in, ge- in general. But I think my original interview was uh, – him asking, okay, so you know Eric? I'm like, yep, I know Eric. And he's like, have you done any like work in security before? And I said, no. And he said, but you're studying computer science and you're going to graduate in a year? And I said, yeah. And he's like, okay, you can start on Monday. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was <laughs> really pr- pretty pretty lucky that I just had somebody, you know, that was a, a connection to, you know, vouch for me and say like, hey, that, you know, this person is smart and can do uh, computer stuff and we do computer stuff. So you should hire this person. So that was kind of how I lucked into doing security. Like I didn't really know like, Oh, I want to go into pen testing or like, you know, I want to go into security. I was kind of just thinking like, Oh, like I kind of did some security stuff in high school. Like that seems pretty fun. Uh, I think there's a future for the industry and here we are like a decade later, like there's definitely been a future. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> pretty you know, nice so, it's so uh, weird to how get that, in through that yeah it's so weird how that happens especially in security and it reminds me of the bill gates thing where he was just like hanging around randomly and there happened to be this giant computer at the college where he was and he was like i guess i'll go spend some time on it and it like and then he becomes bill gates right and it's like so many people in security they just happen to know somebody they happen to be close to a thing and because there are so few people who could do the job you know, 10 years ago or whatever, it's just like you get vouched for, you show some sort of talent and ambition and that that's the stepping stone right there. Yeah. I think another thing is like, even when I was graduating in 2013, like even less so than there is today, like there wasn't really a lot of places that had like a defined path for security in terms of like an academic path and like what you study, like it's most, it was mostly just either people that were self-taught or people that got computer science degrees. And they're like, I want to turn this into security. Yep. Um, now I know there's a lot more options in terms of like uh, different ways to learn about security. Like there's a lot more resources uh, online. There's more places that have like certificate and degree programs and like mentorship and stuff like that. And um, I think it's great to see, the industry start to mature and make getting into security more accessible. Yeah. Um, not that it was difficult for me at the time, luckily, but we definitely need more people getting into security. So I'm glad to see that there's um, like additional avenues other than just like, Oh, I happen to know somebody Yeah. because <laughs> that isn't a scalable way to get um, new people into the industry. Yeah. I might want to ask you about that later. I, I think a, a lot about that. I wish we could actually scale that more than more so than the, you know, the formal education right now, because the formal education, a lot of those people are getting out and they can't find jobs because there's a top five things that a hiring manager needs someone to be able to do. And they're like, can you audit third parties? Can you take all these logs and make something useful from them? 
can you find vulns in some random application that I throw at you? Are you really good at writing things up? And if the answer is no, then it doesn't matter if they have this you know, certificate or degree. And uh, so they get passed over. So you have hiring managers who can't find anyone. And you have a bunch of people with security credentials who can't find jobs. And they're both saying that you know, there's nobody out there. When in fact, there's tons of people who can't find each other because they can't do these transitional jobs. And it's like, we need to find a way to scale what you went through and what I went through, which is just being thrown into something with a bunch of nerds and sorting it out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was definitely helpful, like getting that opportunity while I was still in school because companies are way more willing to take risks on people when they're in school still and like relatively inexpensive um, compared to somebody who now has a degree and, uh, you know, is, is worth more and uh, like wants a full-time job and benefits and that kind of thing. Um, So I do think that there's like one way to potentially solve that is to have better partnerships between like these programs and companies that are equipped to handle uh, like onboarding and training of somebody that, is relatively junior in the field and it's also great because even if the person doesn't come in with like you know whatever the requirements that um they think they like they need are um you basically have an extended trial period with this person before you need to make a decision on whether or not they are fit to be a full-time employee totally. you know because like when i started at redspin like i definitely wasn't fit to be a full-time employee in terms of like what I knew, but after working there part-time for nine months, it was like, yeah, I pretty much knew all of the responsibilities of a junior hire at that point. Um, And so I think that stuff like that, where you're working while still in schools, uh, a really important aspect of like having more to talk about than coursework, you inevitably meet some people, Um, you know, ideally you like the company that has you know, hired you on and you can just keep working for them. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of benefits that I think of in, uh, like having that internship part-time job set up while you're, um, getting started. Yeah, totally. So now you're at segment, uh, what, what does segment do exactly? Sure. So kind of the, the tech that makes segment cool is, Companies that are our customers, they need to move tons of event data about their customers from one place to another. So, you know, maybe you're interacting with a brand on their website. Um, Maybe they've sent you some emails. Uh, Maybe you've actually bought something from a physical location. That company wants to use all of this data that they've collected to create a more tailored experience for you. And we help companies do that. So we don't share any data between our customers. Like each customer has to build up their own set of information about their customers. Um, and we're the infrastructure that makes taking all this data from disparate tools um, and combining it uh, with other tools that that company is using. So at our mm. peak, we're, we're moving like a few hundred thousand events every second to hundreds of different integrations on behalf of like our total customer base. And so on the data plane side, uh, that's mostly engineers working in Go. 
um, and then doing a bunch of crazy stuff in the on the AWS side uh, to make that a reality. Mm-hmm. And then we have people that are more on the uh, control plane side, and so that's mostly TypeScript and React, and that's what allows our customers to actually configure um, like where this data is going, whether it's going to an integration or to their own internal warehouse or you know whatever they want to do with that data. So I'm mostly on the control plane side. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm mostly focused on application and product security stuff, um, but we also have people on the cloud security side that um, are more focused on like how we do things securely in AWS. And as with any business, obviously there's parts that kind of span both those planes. Like it's not like a strict divide between control plane and data plane, but like generally speaking, the app and product security people are kind of more on the control plane side and the um, cloud sec people are, are more on the um, data plane and cloud infrastructure side. Okay. That makes sense. So it's like, it's an enrichment platform where you combine data from multiple places to get like the enriched form of it, the, the, the final form that you want to use. Yep. So if you, you know, have collected some information from your website and you want to send that to like Marketo or HubSpot or, uh, you want to do an email campaign or whatever. Um, the marketing and sales team for our customers, like maybe using a few tools, they may be using tens of tools. Um, and we want to make sure that wherever they need to use the data, um, they have it available. Cool. And um, so a number of times we've talked about actually like the structure of a security team. And it seems like you have an interesting perspective on that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like embedding security resources inside of dev teams versus like a centralized team and how you think about that problem? Yeah, sure. So um, as I mentioned, uh, I'm on the security engineering team and we're kind of the uh, the arm that partners most closely with the different software developers. We have other teams at Segment um, that focus on other stuff. So we have like our CERT team that's building and maintaining infrastructure related to logging and monitoring. They're the ones that uh, handle incident response. They, they kind of span both the like cloud and corporate environments. We have corporate security and IT actually reports to corporate security at Segment. So they're the ones that um, manage like employee onboarding and account provisioning. Well, that's um, the that's network. interesting by itself. IT reporting yeah. to security? Yeah. Um, it's kind of uh, just how things worked out at Segment because we had uh, a really strong head of security, Colleen, who's our CISO. Um, we hired a really great guy, Danny. He's actually the person I've worked the longest with anywhere because we worked together at Bug Crowd. Um, and he had a, a, an IT management background, but also did um, like corporate security stuff at Bug Crowd. And so he's built up um, like their or like IT infrastructure, like with security in mind, like all the people on IT, um, they're just managing so many things that have such security impact, like account provisioning and like Okta and employee onboarding and, and all that stuff. Like almost everything secu- IT does has like some sort of security impact. So um, yeah, I think that we're going to start to see more IT orgs report into security. And I know that mm. historically... There's been some setups where security is reported to IT, 
um, I think we're going to start to see that flip um, in the next like handful of years or decade, maybe. Yeah, I I would love to agree with you. Um, I think it might be the case for some forward-thinking companies, but yeah, it seems like a great model. Um, yeah, and, and I've seen a lot of groups also reporting into finance, which which seems kind of similar into a risk function, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then speaking of risk, uh, the fourth like sub team is, is our GRC team. So they're the ones that um, manage our compliance. Uh, they're the ones that interact with our customers when they send us um, audits or security questionnaires. They do third-party vendor security. They um, obviously partner pretty close with legal and privacy. So um, those are like the four pillars. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm on the security engineering team, which is the combination of app, cloud, and prodsec. So pretty close to software engineering. Okay, that makes sense. So how are you doing the actual influence with the developers? Like, how are you interacting with them, um, trying to get them to do the right thing? Uh, Stick versus carrot type situation. Yeah. So our first interaction with most developers um, starts with our training. So we actually give in-person training to our developers. Um, And then from there, like we see that as a great way to uh, get them up to see, speed on some security stuff. Um, but also it's just a really great way to build relationships and um, relationships are how you get anything done. Um, I don't think security is any different. Um, sure. Yep. There's lots of crazy technical challenges uh, that security people and engineers and other people in your company face, but um, like how big can a project really be if it's, only being done by like a single team and like i would even count like working within like sub teams like within a like one org but um like almost everything that you do that's going to have a large impact is you're going to need to do at least some coordination or get buy-in from another part of your company or have them do some work for you and so i think that relationship building is incredibly important um, if you want to be successful as a security team, especially because we rely so heavily on people coming to us, um, there's no way that we can keep track of like everything that's going on at a company. Um, yeah. We are significantly outnumbered by developers, even though I would say that we have a very favorable ratio compared to a lot of companies. I think our team is eight and we have like just over like 100 people. Mm-hmm on the engineering side. So we're pretty well staffed, but like still, even if you're well staffed, like developers are just writing so much code and like making so many more changes than um, the security team. So you you need to rely on people coming to you and saying like, Hey, I don't uh, feel good about this. How do I do it better? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or like, Hey, we're starting work on this project. Like we, um, you know, here's what we're thinking. Like, how do we do this safely? So, um, yeah, a lot of it kind of starts with the relationship building. Um, and then uh, our kind of our vision for the teams is to have some amount of the people on the team focused on enabling other engineering teams to move uh, safely and be mostly self-guided. So it's like a combination of training, evaluating tooling, um, running external tests, doing design reviews, threat modeling, bug bounty, um, 
that kind of thing, but like trying to democratize as much as possible and um, having engineers feel confident in their ability to uh, make security choices. Mm -hmm. And then we have another portion that's kind of focused on uh, embedding within teams to get impactful security work done. So um, having somebody that's just embedded in that team for the lifetime of, uh, or like the initial project of like, you know, getting something um, done. Yeah, that, that's what I was wondering. So are, are you, are you physically sending or virtually sending in this case, um, someone to be assigned like embedded versus are you deputizing? Are you sort of saying, hey, we've noticed that you've caught on to the security stuff quite a bit. Can you be our representative within your own team? Or is it some combination? Yeah, so we haven't really gone the like formalized security champions route of like deputizing people. Um, our goal has kind of been to try and make as many people as possible security champions versus mm. having it be a like defined role per team. Like we really do think that security is part of everyone's job. And if you have um, you know, more people thinking about this kind of stuff, like you're gonna be in a better state. Yeah. And so we have a, a leaderboard where we keep track of security points. So if you, um, you know, do different positive things, like we'll, we'll award you points and it's based off of like the Halo uh, two or three. Mm. I think it's the Halo two, like matchmaking, like stickers for like level five and level 10 and stuff like that. So um, the goal of that first team is really taking the centralized security model and as we get good enough at certain parts of it, figuring out how we can distribute it. And so I think that like basically any new thing that we do will start in some sort of like mostly centralized model. But mm -hmm. the goal is if it's something that we're doing all the time, how do we actually teach other people in the org or how do we build tooling um, to allow them to do this themselves? Yeah. And then on the embedded side, that's actually like sharing the work effort associated with this task. And the goal is there to have um, like a shared responsibility between security and this engineering team, um, but also make it easier so that, you know, as the team is working on this um, critical work, they don't have to always be getting a new person up to speed from the team based off of like whoever's on call or whatever, like you're supposed to have somebody on the team um, from security. That's just like always has the context and can all and answer the questions more quickly and give you um, better answers. Um, so for, for certain projects uh, we do kind of loan people out to different teams um, and I think that's a really good experience for us to go through because it just makes us better equipped to deal with questions even out outside of the project, just because you know how more of segment works. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the fact that you're going right to every developer and kind of skipping the phase of deputies. It's like you wouldn't, mm -hmm. like in the future, we're not going to think of a time. I mean, if you imagine like physical buildings, you wouldn't have like a separate set of architects who are like, we're the building not fall down team. Um, yeah. Like it would just be kind I, of every architect would be into buildings not falling down. 
Yep. And I think it's a kind of a similar transformation that we saw like with DevOps and companies moving away from having dedicated QA teams. Like this is just part of building good software. Yep. And if you want to take this stuff seriously, it's it's not something where it's like one team's responsibility. It's like, sure, you'll have a team that kind of specializes in that and is helping other teams do a better job. But really everybody needs to be caring about this stuff and um, like we're here to help, but ultimately it's your responsibility to ship something secure for our customers. Um, We can't fix every single problem that's out there. Like you need to be preventing most of them um, with the guidance that, that we've given you and the education and um, your own research too. Like we're not experts in everything. Like Mm -hmm. there are people that are way smarter than it, than us at segment and uh, know way more about the systems that they're working on. And uh, the Googling that they do to figure out the problem is going to be much more efficient than the Googling that we do in, in many cases. So right. um, I do think that, you know, letting teams know like, Hey, this is your responsibility um, is going to get them to take things more seriously. Yeah. I, I love that approach. I, I do think it is the approach that everyone will arrive at. They'll just get there at different times based on, how much uh, legacy they're dealing with. Um, yeah. So and we have a huge, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, and we have a huge advantage there. Cause like, we're just a younger company. Like we hired a security team relatively early. Like we've made sure to build relationships like throughout the time that we've been there. Whereas, you know, if you're a company that's, uh, you know, a decade or two old, and you're trying to go back when you're already at a really big size and say, hey, this is another thing that everybody needs to care about. It's significantly harder than um, uh, it was for Segment, which got on that train pretty early. And yeah. it's much easier to maintain that than to retrofit. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So uh, the other thing that you've always mentioned whenever we get together, I think the last time we talked about it was that AppSec Cali, but um, basically some cool projects that you've worked on. So basically some challenges that you've seen, which really are across the industry, but unique ways that you approach them. Um, And you mentioned a few of them uh, starting off with the metric service. Yeah. um, I think the metric service is really uh, an awesome project. It's actually a, a project that I haven't been super involved in. It's actually one of my, my coworkers, but, I think this is does a really good job of illustrating um, how we want to make security visible for every team. And so the goal of the metric service is to take any of the vulnerabilities that are you know working their way through our vulner, vulnerability management process and bring them into one centralized area that helps teams understand how well they're doing. And so this will be a combination of vulnerabilities uh, in third-party libraries identified by SNCC. Um, This could be vulnerabilities from a pen test or from a bug bounty program, or, you know, maybe it's something that we found internally, or maybe there was a design review that we did that had some um, open implementation items. All of these things uh, are things that would contribute to this um, metric service. And then each week, 
we send out um, an email to the different engineering managers that shows them like, hey, this is a preview of your score for Friday, or I think it's Friday, I can't remember, but later in the week we send out like the real metrics, which mm. actually has grades and it has, everybody can see each other's metrics too. So there's like a little bit of uh, gamification going on there where yeah. you, know, you wanna com compare favorably to your peers. And, um, but we do give people, you know, advance warning anytime we're going to add a new contributing factor, like we give them a few weeks where it's like, Hey, here's the data. Here's how the data is going to impact the scoring. Um, you know, yeah. Give some opportunity with to this information. <laughs> go and clean up there uh, prior to it, it landing. Right. Exactly. Um, and so we think this, this is a really good system because like we always want people to know how we think they're doing in security um, because we have a lot of people that really care about security and we want to make it easy for them to know what they need to be working on um, or what we think they should be working on. Yeah. Um, and so this is a good way to, to distribute that information. To yeah. People. I think that's powerful because not only does that build trust in the metrics themselves, like over time, but it also builds trust with you because they don't feel like you're trying to gotcha them. You know, you're just yeah. trying to do the right thing. Exactly. And it's something that over time we want to raise the bar to. So like what is going to get you, you know, like an A or a B or whatever today, like hopefully if you do nothing for a year, your score will be worse because we've raised the bar and, you know, the fact that you have, uh, you know, five highs or whatever right now, like maybe that, I actually don't know what this would translate to, but let, let's just say that would give you a B right now. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe next this time next year, that's an A minus because we've raised uh, the requirements to get the higher grade. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then wh what about integration with uh, multi-factor authentication? How does that work? Yeah, so I think this is a, a good example of something that um, kind of hits on that second um, function of our team, which is actually embedding with uh, another part of the organization. And this is actually a project that went super well from like a deliverable standpoint, but was um, kind of a learning process in like the embed program because we just hadn't really done it before. We knew we wanted to build MFA. We had an engineering team that was like, we want to help you build MFA. Um, and ultimately what it kind of turned out to be was like, I built the back end um, as part of some work with like our um, like the login service, uh, the thing that handles like authentication for our customers via web. Um, and then somebody else just like did all the react stuff to like wire it up to the backend. Um, so it wasn't really like an embed. It was kind of more like a relay, a relay race. Like I just handed off, uh, part of it to them. Um, and there was still some good knowledge transfer and uh, like I learned some amount from like their planning process and attended some of their standups and stuff, but um, you know, it wasn't, didn't really have like a true embed feel, but this quarter I'm working on um, a new authentication service. So we're hmm. uh, reworking um, the way that we handle some uh, authentication on both like the, the web and the, the API side for our customers. And this quarter, I'm actually like attending every weekly meeting with that team. 
I'm partnered very closely with one of the developers. Um, we have a shared OKR between um, security and this uh, engineering team to uh, complete some shared work uh, that has some some high security impact. Um, I have a, a one-on-one every other week with the manager of that team. Uh, I wrote a lot of the uh, design doc for this this new system and went through the security review process, not as a security engineer, but actually as from the software engineering side. So there was somebody else from uh, my team that actually performed the security review of this system. Hmm. Um, and so the, this has been um, a much deeper embed with uh, one of our engineering teams. That's cool. And so what does is, what is the service do? Um, yeah, so this is the authentication service. So this is what handles um, when you type your username and password into segment or your MFA code or um, like if you're authenticating via SAML, um, this handles creating the JWT. It handles revocation of JWTs. Um, we haven't gotten to this part yet, but it's also going to handle uh, API authentication. So if you're somebody who's logging in um, programmatically to make changes to your workspace, um, it'll also handle that that first layer. It doesn't handle any authorization. It's just, uh, you know, Authent. is this, yeah, it's just like, is this person who they say they are? That's cool. Yeah, I remember a long time ago, I went to a talk talking about, um, it was from Google and they were talking about how like everyone had different auth end services and they just decided to unify it and just have one for the entire company and just simplify the, uh, the attack surface there. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's worthwhile. Um, I mean, getting something like that right is really important and uh, getting it right one time is certainly easier than getting it right five times. So I could definitely understand uh motivation there and that was part of our motivation at segment to um, bring in like our api auth into this same system so that um, we can just authenticate in one way regardless of like how somebody's trying to interact with with segment but it's yeah. been a really good um learning experience i've learned a ton about jwts mm. uh th- throughout the process um because we, we you know we were using jwts before we're going to use them in the future um, but um, also wanted to, you know, to make some some changes on on like how we're handling JWTs and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was a really good learning experience actually taking the time to write the design doc um, for what this system should look like. Well, that's awesome. It sounds like you're doing some really cool stuff over there. Um, really appreciate your time, Leaf. But but before I let you go, I actually want to hit you with some fast questions that uh well you can take as long as you want to answer them but um just give listeners a little more of a feel for you so first one uh text editor or code editor yeah so i actually spend a lot of time in vs code um for the projects i'm working on but if i have to you know just log into something quick on like a host somewhere and you know i don't have like the full benefits of a visual editor definitely an emacs over vim guy whoa that's that's the first i heard of that i'm disturbed but pleased 
my first my first uh, computer science professor professor in college used Emacs, and a ton of us just you know picked that up from them and uh, just kept using it. And it's not something I've I've ever really felt like I need to learn another one of. Like I really don't need to use like a full like text based editor that often, and I just don't really think it's worth the time to learn another one when I already know how to use Emacs. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to need to get that professor's name so we can um, <laughs> find out who's spreading evil in the world. Um, best hacker movie. Uh, my, one of my favorites is Tron. I watched Tron a ton with my dad growing up. Um, you know, maybe it had some sort of subtle influence on like shaping what I was interested in as I got older. But um, yeah, there's tons of good hacker movies out there. I mean, like, Sneakers is a classic. Uh, Hackers is a classic. Even The Matrix, I consider that a hacker movie. But yeah, yep. my favorite's Tron. Okay. And if someone comes to you and they're like, I heard you're a dev, I heard you're in security, like what language should I learn? Or even if they're not even going to get in security, they just want to learn a programming language, wh- what would you recommend they start with? Yeah, so I think that if there's a project they're really passionate about, figuring out what some reasonable languages for that project are. Um, Even if it's not like the best language to learn first, I think that um, I've always learned the most when there's something that I'm just like genuinely interested in solving. And that curiosity will allow you to, you know, overcome some of the hurdles of this, maybe not being like the best language for a beginner. Um, If your project doesn't have specific requirements, like it's an iOS app or something, um, I think Python's a great choice. It was actually the first language that that I learned. I don't Mm -hmm. really do too much Python development um, these days, but I like that Python's flexible. Uh, It's pretty easy to read. Like there's not a ton of like braces and like crazy symbols. Um, there's a ton of tutorials. There's really good library support. Like you can do almost anything with it. Um, so yeah, I think Python's a really good choice for people that are just getting started. Okay. Yeah. I, I, um, I thought Ruby was a slightly better Python, but, and it was making headway and then machine learning came around and now Python is winning again. The only thing I think it, the only thing annoys me is indentation. But I, I mm-hmm. love Python. I think it's awesome. I mean, it, it's kind of like Ubuntu used to be, where it's like it's just the distro, and because it's the distro, it has the most people in the forums with solutions. And it's the same with Python and libraries. Yeah, I mean, like I really feel like Python got a second wind. Like I remember maybe like five years ago or so, like it, or you know maybe a little bit more than that, like five to seven years ago. Like I agree, it really seemed like Ruby was picking up the, like the scripting, uh, like people, you know, people just wanted to like hack some stuff together. Like Ruby on rails was really popular. If your company was founded between like 2008 and like 2014. Um, but yeah, I I feel like Python's kind of gotten a second wind. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because of the machine learning thing. I also really liked your answer. I think I'm going to steal that answer. It's really good. I, I might have said something similar in the past, but I, I like the way you frame that. Basically, don't ask what language you should use because you've already kind of failed with getting someone excited. Like the the way to teach someone to program is to get them excited about program 
or uh, problem solving. So it's like, just hook them on a, on a problem and then find out whatever the forums say are like the best language to use and wh- where you can find examples of solutions, you know, focus on the problem and let that curiosity pull you through as opposed to starting with the language and just boring people. Yeah. I mean, luckily with Python, it's like you can do a ton of stuff with it. And uh, it also is a really easy way to like learn kind of the fundamentals that are present in like any normal language, like variable assignment and loops and if else, and, you know, kind of all the the basic building blocks that allow you to do whatever you want in the future. But um, yeah, I mean, if somebody is like, I have this really good iOS app idea, like this is what I want to do. I want to build it. It's like, then you should learn Swift because if you really love this idea, um, like you're going to be much more driven than like, oh, I'm just learning Python so that I can at some point make this iOS app. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And uh, what do you do when you're not coding? You're not doing development or other geeky stuff? So, I mean, the last few weeks with the shelter at home in place at uh, NSF, I've been playing a ton of video games. Um, been playing a lot of the original World of Warcraft uh, with my friends. But um, before that, you know, is is mostly hanging out with friends like outside mm-hmm. uh, of of the computer and traveling stuff like that. Cool. And what would you do if money were not an object and not a consideration? If you just had all the billions, what would you do? Um, you know, I'd, I'd probably travel a lot and I, you know, if I was going to work somewhere, I'd, I'd probably consider working as a scuba instructor. Yeah. That's why I love that question. It's like, I got friends who do a little bit of boxing and, uh, I got someone who's like a, a hardcore instructor and their mission in life is actually to just open a gym and teach people how to, how to fight and defend themselves and do real martial arts. And it's like, uh, you see, you see, see what people actually value. So interesting, scuba instructor. I got um, dive certified in the Gulf of Aqaba in um, Egypt. Um, I've, heard, I've heard there's some really good diving over there. I've I've never dove over there. I've done a lot of stuff in like the Caribbean and uh, on the Pacific side of of Mexico and in Santa Barbara as well. But uh, I haven't done any diving uh, outside of uh, the Americas. Yeah, I just did it that once, just open water one. It was fantastic. Um, last question. What do you uh what do you have coming up and what should the listeners know about and hear about that um where 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 we can find you online? Yeah, so I mean if people want to reach out on Twitter, that's a really good um way to reach me. It's just Leaf Dreisler. Um you can find me on LinkedIn too. I'm the the only leaf at segment. And uh, from there you can figure out the spelling of my name and then find me on Twitter. Um, and then in terms of what I'm going to be like presenting at and stuff, uh, I actually don't have any CFPs out. Um, I help organize the LocomocoSec conference. Uh, it's a Hawaii based product security conference that uh, recently got rescheduled. Mm. Um, from May to uh, November. Okay. So that's a handful of months away. Uh, hopefully the coronavirus has 
died down by then and we, we don't have to move it again. And um, so that would be one, one way that people could, uh, you know, meet me in person. And I actually released a, a blog yesterday about long-term success in bug bounty management on uh, Segment's engineering blog. So if you want to hear some stuff from somebody who's run a bounty program for a few years and worked at a bug bounty platform for a few years, uh, that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that post. It was really good. And I love the perspective because like you said, you've been at the company, you've been a sales engineer there and done multiple roles there. And then you've actually run a program. So you've seen all sides of that. So that's a really good post people should check out. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And uh, respectful of your time here, I think we just hit the one hour mark, but uh, Leaf, thank you so much for coming on the show and hopefully we'll get to uh, hang out in person uh, again here shortly. Yeah, I hope so as well. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Take care. You too. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsupervised Learning. I believe ads are not just annoying, but that their incentive structure is toxic to the content creation process. So if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it directly for just $5 a month or $50 a year, which is two months for free. UL members get the newsletter each week instead of just twice a month. They get access to the archives. They get access to the UL Slack community, where we share ideas and links about the topics we discuss here in the podcast. They also get access to the UL Book Club, where we pick a book a month and talk about it live as a group. To become a member, just head over to danielmiesler.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much to everyone who's already a member. Each of you is helping support a model of content creation that we really need right now. And I appreciate you greatly. We'll see you next time.